I think stopping the experimentation altogether is not the right approach either. I mean, I saw some statistic where some large percentage of people are using like chat GPT and other things without telling their bosses. And that's driven by a culture of fear as well. Welcome to Sidecar Sync, your weekly dose of innovation. If you're looking for the latest news, insights, and developments in the association world, especially those driven by artificial intelligence, you're in the right place. We cut through the noise to bring you the most relevant updates with a keen focus on how AI and other emerging technologies are shaping the future. No fluff, just facts and informed discussions. I'm Amit Nagarajan, chairman of Blue Cypress, and I'm your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Sidecar Sync. My name is Mallory Mejias, and I'm the manager over here at Sidecar. And today we've got an insightful conversation lined up for you with Greg Kilstrom. But before we dive into that interview, I want to say thank you to today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is the Sidecar AI Bootcamp. If you are looking to dive deeper on your AI education in 2024 and beyond, I encourage you to check out Sidecar's AI Bootcamp. With the Bootcamp, you'll get access to flexible on-demand lessons. And not only that, lessons that we regularly update so you can be sure that you are keeping up with the latest in artificial intelligence. You'll also get access to weekly live office hours with our AI experts, and you get access to a community of fellow AI enthusiasts in the association and greater nonprofit space. You can get the bootcamp for $399 a year on an annual subscription, and you can also get access for your whole team for one flat rate. If you want more information on Sidecar's AI Bootcamp, go to sidecarglobal.com slash bootcamp. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a great conversation and interview lined up for you today with Greg Kilstrom. Greg is a best-selling author, speaker, and entrepreneur, and serves as an advisor and consultant to top companies on marketing technology, marketing operations, customer experience, and digital transformation initiatives. Today, Amith and I are interviewing Greg on all things marketing and artificial intelligence. In today's interview, we're going to cover some early wins that Greg has seen with his clients implementing AI. We're going to talk about handling that fear of change and transformative technologies in your organization. We're also going to cover Greg's top two marketing AI use cases. And spoiler alert, they're not as simple as just having ChatGPT write your LinkedIn post for you. We're going to talk about some of Greg and our top marketing AI tools. And finally, we're going to wrap up this conversation with a discussion around bias in AI tools and how you can mitigate that. It's a great conversation today that we have lined up. Thank you all for tuning in. And without further ado, here's that interview. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. I was hoping you could share with listeners a little bit about your background with AI and marketing in particular, and what brings you here. Yeah, absolutely. And first, thanks so much for having me on today. Um, so yeah, just a, a little background on myself. I come from a kind of a mix of, I really started my career as a, a web designer back in the day when when there were webmasters and, and things like that. So probably dating myself here. But um, but I really kind of fell in love with this intersection of the the creative realms, you know, more from the design aspect and, and UX aspect married with marketing and married with technology. And, you know, it's sort of at that intersection that I've really spent my career. Um, after an initial job at a startup uh, in the in the DC area where I'm based, I started a, a digital marketing agency and ran that uh, for about 14 years, sold it about six years ago. But in that in that time, we worked for a number of for-profit companies as well, but we also got, got the chance to work with some nonprofits, some associations, um, large and small. So, you know, really had a ran the gamut from for-profit, non-profit, and so have some pretty broad experience there. We also got the opportunity to do some things early on in personalization, you know, what big data was all the buzz of, uh, about a decade or so ago, but, you know, got to play with some of those things, which really became precursors to AI and, and some of the things that we're now talking about. And so much more recently since selling the agency, now I'm working primarily with uh, Fortune 1000 companies uh, looking at everything from marketing strategy to operations to within the last year or so, AI has been in every conversation, even if it wasn't the sole focus of that. So, um, you know, definitely excited to talk about this this topic today. 
Greg, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that background with our listeners. And I was excited to get acquainted with you and uh, have this conversation uh, so that we can really connect the dots between marketing and AI and the association sector. And knowing that you have some experience in serving the market is awesome. It's going to be really helpful for our listeners to, to feel that context as, as you describe different opportunities. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the last 12 months in AI have been crazy for everyone. So um, what are your thoughts in terms of just generally where you've seen people have some early successes in 2023 when you advise clients with respect to AI specifically in marketing, or it could be more general? Uh, that's a, an area that many people are really interested in. Is like, where do I get started? Where, can, where are some low-hanging fruit potentially? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you would think that AI was invented last year or something for all the for all the buzz around it. Obviously, you know, it's been around for decades, but I think the um, the generative component of it is really what you know caught everyone's interest with ChatGPT. Certainly, leading leading that and 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 then translating into a lot of things. You know, I think one of the one of the most interesting, and I think. Um, one of the things that separates AI and, and particularly generative AI from some of the other things we've been hearing about hype-wise, like just to pick on NFTs and and some other things, metaverse and, and some other things like that, is AI is it's almost immediately usable if, in in some ways. You know, not to everybody in every case, but there are immediate practical applications of using it, and it's also. I would say it's a very democratic um, in, in, in the sense of a large organization can use it, a, um, a small organization can use it in different ways, mind you. you know, I, I tend to work with the larger organizations recently, but I've seen it applied at a you know, three, four or five person organization um, very differently than maybe a 10,000 person organization, but AI can be applied at those at those different levels. So it, it kind of, it, it is able to level the playing field and, and, um, you know, come to almost immediate usage. So, you know, really what I've seen over the last year is a lot of experimentation around it, playing with Bard and ChatGPT and Claude and, you know, all these, all these various platforms. I think this year it's really what I'm, I've termed the, the great reconciliation of, We've been playing around for 12 months. Now let's get real and, and standardize some processes and make sure we're taking into account all the ethical and legal and, and all that stuff. Sure. Well, there's lots to unpack there. And uh, we've had similar experiences within the association market. I think that this is a sector, as, as you know, from prior experience that doesn't necessarily jump on the bandwagon with new technology the fastest compared to other industries, perhaps. Uh, although what I've been pleased with AI is that there has been a strong amount of interest around generative AI in the last 12 months, particularly the last six months, it's really started to become a big area of interest for, for the C-suite, not just for you know the technology officers, but for everyone, including the CEOs of these organizations. Part of what we, we spend a lot of time talking about on this show and in our content is this idea that these opportunities they not only allow you to make your business more efficient, but also they open up new possibilities that you know weren't weren't things that you could do even a year ago. Uh, have you seen any transformations of businesses that you've worked in either either type, where there's dramatic efficiency gains, or perhaps there's new businesses or new products or services that became possible because of generative AI? And uh, we'd love to hear those experiences. Yeah, I mean on the on the operational side of things, I mean definitely you know every no matter what size organization you're at, you're, you're generally being asked to do more with less. Right. So again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a two person nonprofit or a, you know, 200,000 person, you know, for profit, everyone, you know, belts are tightening and, you know, budgets are getting cut. People are getting laid off. So it's, it's always, to me, it's, it's about being able to do more and not, and not just more, but, um, more relevant um, work uh, for for less effort put in. So, you know, I think that's what I've really seen in you know in the last twelve months is all of a sudden we're getting we're getting more quickly through you know ideating a campaign to getting the content um, for that campaign out. And also, by the way, we hit a button and we've got content for email and website and social and, and all these things. And so, you know, it's still humans driving it. It's still humans editing and making sure it's on brand and on message and, and that there's no weird stuff, hallucinations thrown in there. But, um, 
it's it's allowed so many teams to do so much more so much more quickly and and the you know it's always about 75 80% there you know straight out of ai maybe but it's that 20% lift is is nothing compared to having to do it from scratch and kind of facing that that blank screen greg i think you make a a really important distinction between a first draft or even a second draft and a final product I think where a lot of people get hung up is that AI is not perfect. AI does make mistakes. In fact, it can do these things. A lot of people refer to as hallucinations or making things up entirely, right? And at the same time, um, part of what we explain to folks is that, well, if you hire someone right out of college and you ask them to write an article for your website or build a campaign, you generally would review their work first and probably expect to edit it. And so we tend to position AI as perhaps an earlier career contributor. Uh, but I, w- I would actually argue that even something done by someone very experienced, you know, it stands to benefit from additional review from collaborators. Um, have you had a, a similar perspective to that? Have you had any challenges with getting people to think of it as, as that first draft type of mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, there. I think it often starts with it kind of goes back to the the model of of change right the the first reaction to change is always some kind of like fear or denial or or something like that and so i think you know once you get past that okay ai is not taking all our jobs and we're we're quite a few years away from the this terminator skynet situation so you know um once you kind of get past that hurdle um then yeah i think looking at it as it's an it's an augmentation like it, it helps us get past certain hurdles that just take humans a while to to get to and so if you think of it as we're going to use ai at three points in the process but the humans are kind of the gatekeepers and the checkpoints and the humans are also the ones driving the request you know it's it's not a great idea to ask ai what should i market today you know but giving giving the right prompt to uh you know ai can yield some really good results and you know humans can make them excellent results so i think it's it's just kind of wrapping your head around that i mean hey i you know i've written i've written over 20 books i need an editor on every single like chapter that i have ever written so you know it's like for us to think that ai would be any different than than that would not be smart I think, I think that's absolutely the right way to look at it. The current generation of AI is, is pretty amazing. At the same time, it makes mistakes that all of us make at times and perhaps other mistakes. And so I think it's a really good point. Um, I want to dig into use cases in marketing in just a moment, but I want to ask you a question about fear. You mentioned that earlier, the fear of change is part of the theory of change or how to drive change. I think that's something that stops people in the association and nonprofit market quite uh, frequently in their tracks when new technology comes along. In your experience, particularly in the last 12 months, but it could be broader than that, what are some of the best ways to help people overcome those fears? Yeah, I think, you know, first is just education. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to be afraid of things that we don't understand and, and don't know. Right. So that's, and that's just, that's well beyond technology. That's just life probably. But, um, so, you know, I think first is to become educated and then second, let's be practical about, you know, if, if we are using, depending on the organization, there may be real ethical um, issues that we need to solve for. You know, if you work in a healthcare related organization, for instance, there's a lot of potential with personal health information to be misused or, um, you know, fed into the wrong algorithm and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there it's not that there aren't issues. It's let's be practical about um, what those issues really are and let's have a solve for that. You know, if the solve is, nothing goes out without human approval that's pretty straightforward and again back to to your earlier point it's like we would do that anyway if an intern wrote wrote copy for a financial website like uh, someone's got to review that for compliance right so we would do the same with with ai as well so i think you know first educate then you know understand what the real issues are and then experiment in a way that is very low risk you know maybe do an internal you know, internal document, if there's an internal newsletter or email or, you know, something that, you know, the eyes that are going to see it are going to be, um, you know, a little more forgiving if something is a little weird in it, like experiment and in a, in a low risk way. And then when you're ready, when you're past that hurdle, then feel free to roll it out. Um, but I, I think 
stopping the experimentation altogether is not the right approach either. I mean, I saw some statistic where some large percentage of people are using like chat GPT and other things without telling their bosses. And that's driven by a culture of fear as well. And then, then the organization is at risk without even knowing it. So you, you, you don't want that scenario either. I think it's a really good point that, you know, some people, there's different personality types and different mindsets in an organization. Even a small, a smaller association that might have 20 or 30 employees would still find that certainly the larger ones that have hundreds of people. And then there's also volunteers in the mix because associations are led not only by paid employees, but also their volunteer contributors. And each of these people has their own perspective on AI. And some of them are going to be very much gung ho about taking advantage of it, whether it's because it saves them time in their job or perhaps it's because they think it will raise the bar in terms of the quality of work, whatever their motivation is. And motivation like that is very strong. So I've, I've found that organizations that try to blockade or bar progress because they haven't yet put their hands around it um, and really thought through what it means uh, will ultimately have what you're describing, Greg, which is people will use it anyway, and then it's done in kind of an ungated uh, way without guardrails of any kind. Yeah. 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 Better to at least, you know, sanction it, it for some uses and just kind of see what happens. Cause I mean, you know, the people that are excited about it and using it, I mean, they are the best possible people to, again, experiment with it. To, again, don't just put stuff straight out there to the public that, that you're not comfortable with, but you've got undoubtedly, even in a, in a small group, you've probably got a few people that are pretty excited about this stuff and can really be the, the, they can be in the lab doing some experiments while everybody else is kind of thinking, okay, well then how might this actually work in, in real life? Like what are the review processes we would need to do to make sure it's okay? Does it, does it differ than our current processes? Cause maybe it doesn't, it's just people are hung up on this, like this idea that AI can be, you know, scary and, and stuff like that. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I'll paraphrase a little bit of what you said, and I'll kind of put it in some of my own words, because it's it's somewhat similar to what we talk about a lot related to a book that we published last year called Ascend, which is an AI book specifically for this sector. And in that, we propose a, a mindset, and really a framework called Learn, Experiment, Build, which is really similar to what you're describing, where you first, you know, set out to be aware, set out to gain knowledge, um, and then do incremental experimentation, increasing in scope over time, and then deploy things uh, once you feel comfortable that they're not only safe and, and production worthy, but uh, you know they're, they're the right value add because you're going to have to experiment with a lot of things. Um, it yeah. sounds like you've had a pretty similar experience to what we've encountered from what you just said. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I'm a I'm a big proponent of of just agile principles in general, and I'm not um, so dogmatic that I think everybody has to use Scrum or Safe or you know one one of those um, kind of sanctioned methodologies per se, but what you're describing is a very agile lean process of, of doing things, which, you know, serves any type of organization anywhere. Like I, it would be hard for me to think that there's another way to do it. In other words, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I run a small group of uh, CEOs where we meet at least monthly to talk about the strategy of AI. It's really what we're focused on. And the interesting thing about it is, um, first of all, it's great because the CEOs of these types of organizations historically haven't had much interest in technology. And of course, there's some that have had it, but you know, generally speaking, it's not been a, a t uh, technology-centric space. So that's great. But what's interesting about it is we're looking at it from an economics perspective. We're looking at it from the viewpoint of what happens over time in a particular industry, be it a specialty medical area or accounting or a field of law where, where an association represents those, those people or this, that profession essentially, what happens to their members first? What happens to that audience? And what will they need in terms of products and services to help them in, in their journey wherever it goes because of AI and the changes it's gonna have? And then of course the internal view of how do you deliver those services well? And I think what's been interesting is that um, people are pretty humble about not knowing what any of this means. I mean, I spent all of my time thinking about this stuff and I have absolutely no idea what the world's gonna look like in, in five years and right. only perhaps a little bit of an idea what it might look like next year. So I think it's, um, that's part of it too, is that we don't have to know the answer to everything. We can, we can start off with that mindset and it's a little bit uncomfortable when groups are used to a five-year strategic plan, which is a fairly common artifact in this industry and a five-year plan I don't know how you do that these days, you know, especially with what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, it's a, it's a guess. I mean, and to your point, a five day plan is almost a guess these days, but um, maybe with a, a little more um, certainty, but yeah, agreed. I mean, I think, you know, the, the best you can do is, 
um, have regular plans to check your progress and, you know, goals don't need to change, you know, that the five-year goals may stay the same, but how you get there is going to, I mean, again, anyone that making plans at the beginning of what 2020, um, surely had to make some, some changes, um, very quickly midway through the year. Right. So like, but that doesn't mean that their overall goals for their organization fundamentally changed. It's just the way they got there had to all of a sudden be about remote and digital and, you know, and all that stuff for, for a while. So I think to your point, it's, yeah, I, I think that five years of certainty is if it was ever possible, it's certainly not now. Makes a lot of sense. I want to pivot a little bit in our conversation and uh, ask you to share with our listeners a little bit about some of your favorite use cases of AI, uh, specifically in the context of marketing, if we can zoom in there. Um, and maybe just kind of uh, in terms of the number, it doesn't necessarily matter when we start with your top one or two that you think might have the most impact. Yeah, I mean, I think um, and and this is something I use. I have several tools that I use. And um, so I do, I do a lot of this, not only for my own work, you know, I have my own podcast. And, and in addition to consulting, I, I create my own content as well, wrote a, wrote a few books and, and everything, as I mentioned. So um, some of this is firsthand, and some of this is working with as a consultant with clients. But I think just the the brainstorming and concepting process has just, it that's changed my life personally, as far as um, you know, give me 10 idea. You know, I have, I have a local version of llama running for instance. So like I, I just type in my little terminal and like, give me 10 ideas for X, Y, Z. Seven of them are terrible. Like, uh, like almost undoubtedly seven of them are terrible, but there's three that are okay. You know, I can build on this. I can, you know, maybe with a little tweaking and maybe there's something in the, in three or four of the, those seven that like is worth exploring a little bit further. So you know, when you think about that again, regardless of the size of the team, but let's let's talk about a small nonprofit or association. You know, maybe you've got one person who is tasked with, okay, we need a campaign for X, Y, Z. Um, come up with some ideas. They're going to spend an entire day brainstorming a few ideas, and you know what? I bet out of ten, three are probably good as well, and seven are terrible. So, like you can get those initial ideas in like 15 seconds and then build on those. So, you know, to me, that use case is give me a starting point. I can make it better based on the right prompt from me. You know, we can, we can get, we can like basically do a day's work in about an hour and then take it further. So I, I think that's, that's a huge one. Um, the second one that I would say would just be the idea of repurposing and reformatting content really easily, because I mean, you know, there are so many social media platforms and, you know, websites, apps, all, all of those kinds of things. And so to be able to take something like, you know, Canva is, is one that I use as well. It's like to take one piece of one design and say, okay, I like how this looks, but I've got to have it in eight different sizes for eight different platforms. I, I actually know how to do it in Photoshop if I really wanted to, but why would I, you know, why don't I just hit a button? And again, it's like 90% there, or maybe 95% there even, um, with a few little tweaks. So again, save someone like me or someone, you know, some junior designer or marketing person that doesn't even know design saves them hours and hours of time. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you've got a pretty extensive design skill set. I, on my end, you know, I have a hard time with a stick figure. So, but I, I think I could use Canva to do that, which is really empowering for someone who doesn't have any of those graphic type skills. Um, you know, with brainstorming, as the first use case you mentioned, I think is super interesting because it requires also people to recognize that the AI potentially can be a thought partner at that phase of ideation brainstorming. It's normally people are accustomed to using these tools once they know what they want to do. Whereas now you have this potential thought partner. I think it's super interesting. I know Mallory in the past, we've we've done similar things in thinking about campaigns for Sidecar where we said, hey, how do we want to approach that? And I think it's it's pretty similar to Greg, Greg's experience. Yep. It's really great at coming up with titles too, especially, or kind of like those taglines. And I'll ask it straight up, you know, give me 15 options. And you're right, Greg, maybe only three of them are good. But hey, that that's a lot quicker than if I had come up with those 15 taglines myself. I'm curious in your experience, do you only use tools like Llama you mentioned or ChatGPT, let's say, in that brainstorming ideation process, or do you also use it in that next step of actually creating the content? 
Uh, I use it across like throughout the entire process. So yeah, I mean, you know, but, but it, there's always like the, the, the gate and when it's just content for me, I'm the gatekeeper, so to speak, but in other, you know, working in a larger org or something, you know, there would be different gatekeepers at, at different stages, but just talking from my own perspective. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll get some initial concepts. I'll write something that gives me some direction to then go back and say, okay, well, based on this idea, you know, write me a, an intro paragraph or do something like that. Again, it's not a hundred percent there, but it's closer and closer and it kind of iterates. And then it's like, okay, I've got this blog post, give me social posts based on that or write a write email copy to promote this or, you know, or things like that. And so, you know, all, all of that stuff, it just takes time. It doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of strategy to do it, but you know, it, it takes human time. And so, and I'm part of the process. I can I can guide it if if there's something weird in there or if there's some random citation from a publication that was never actually written or something, then I can I can guide the process before it gets too far along. Greg, I want to ask you a little about your uh, local Llama instance. Uh, so for those that aren't familiar with that, Llama is an open source AI model that is produced and published by the Meta team. And uh, I'm curious why you decided to download and run your own model for that type of work yeah just to kind of play with it and and to start um training it uh the you know one one of the which i haven't gotten as far on that as i as i'd like but um you know my i have an interest in training it on my own <clears throat> writing and and stuff like that as well to just kind of see can i get something that sounds more and more like me over time now there's there's um you know platforms out there that do that already um that are you know and there there's more and more coming into prominence and and they're getting like domain specific and you know company specific and everything like that but you know for my curiosity was just okay for me you know for my clients like they they'll invest in one of those other platforms that's more established and, and everything like that but for me i was just kind of curious like what could i do with you know just kind of my own my own instance and and trained on stuff here and there so you know so far i you know results have been good you know not great but my expectation was good from the start yeah that makes a lot of sense and i mean you have enough experience with these tools now to expect a different response perhaps out of llama running locally versus than running you know gpt4 on chat gpt probably um right. so that that's yeah. super interesting I think there's a lot of opportunities people to think about how an open source model or really a, a contained model, whether it's open source or proprietary, uh, might be able to handle dealing with perhaps more sensitive content. Some associations are concerned about uh, taking some of their proprietary content and uh, either fine tuning an open AI model or somebody else's model for uh, sensitivity reasons. I think that's an interesting conversation because you know, to the extent that you're concerned about a vendor misappropriating your content outside of their terms of service, that would potentially be a problem if you just put your content in Google or on the Amazon cloud. Um, but there's a lot of misunderstanding of what the terms of service really say. And then, of course, do you trust the vendor? Uh, but of course, in your own in your own world, if you're doing open source and doing fine tuning or even additional, you know, fundamental training, pre-training on a model based on having the open source and being able to do it yourself. Uh, that's really interesting to think about, like, what does that mean? And, and can that give you the most secure environment as well? It sounds like your clients, though, have been primarily working with commercial tools like like ChatGPT or maybe Writer and Jasper and things like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, the larger ones are they're as you would imagine, very risk averse. And so not jumping, you know, jumping too far into, you know, how do we roll this out to end customers as quickly as possible, but more kind of in the experimentation phase, but those enterprise tools are, they're getting really good really quickly. So, you know, you mentioned writer, you know, that's certainly one that is, in my opinion, ready for prime time, so to speak. It's there's lots of large brands, case studies already. You know, it's it's been in use. And Jasper is one I use as well. Um, I mean, I've got like three or four different things that I'll use, and I'm starting to get an idea of like, oh, okay, well, this tool is going to be good for this purpose versus that, and and stuff. So you know, I'm um, even with my own work in it, I'm I'm getting a preference for that. But um, but yeah, and then you know, then you've got the existing kind of legacy platforms, you know, everything from the Adobe, you know, Photoshop introducing generative features and Illustrator and all that to HubSpot and Salesforce. And, you know, so there's, 
that's really that's kind of the other component of this like reconciliation in my mind is you know we had all these startups pop up last year and then we had all the established platforms then tack on generative features some of them a little clumsy at first but they're getting a lot better a lot more quickly i mean the the photoshop example for instance a little clumsy at first but fun to play with but now it's like now it's ready to go and i use it all the time yeah, I have a couple quick things on, on what you just said. One is that the pace of change is so rapid that people assume what they have today is what they'll have in six months. In reality, that's not the case. The AI curve is extreme. And so there's a lot of innovation happening rapidly. The other part is, um, even if there were no fundamental research advances in AI, which I don't think too many people believe is the case, people are generally quite optimistic about what 2024 and the future will hold. Um, there is so much upside with no further fundamental research advances, even if you just essentially took the current frontier models of, you know, Claude 2, GPT-4, Gemini, et cetera, and said, just build stuff on top of that. And people like Writer and people like Adobe just said, we're going to take those models and fully incorporate them into our products. And then the association world and industry in general weaves those technologies into their business, independent of any future advances. And that's a lot of where I think people need to spend their time and focus on, well, try to anticipate a little bit of the future where that puck will be and skate to that point if you can, but also just build with what we've got in a lot of respects. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, I think it's a safe bet to say, you know, the, the Adobe's and Salesforce's and all those aren't going anywhere. And so, you know, if, if, you know, one, one approach would be, okay, well, let's, Let's kind of use what they're what they're developing. I know there's a lot of other platforms that are really good, but sort of standalone platforms. So, you know, maybe pick a few of those to to augment what just doesn't work in, in some of those more legacy platforms. But yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. I, I think there's going to be new and and there's always a, a shiny object that's going to pop up. We have we're only in January right now, so we'll we'll see what happens this year. But I totally agree with you. I think there's enough out there and there again it's it's the meaningful change and the meaningful improvements that it can make to workflow and and output and and even, you know, read some of the case studies on, you know, click-through rate conversions and all those kinds of things when generative was in charge of writing copy versus a human, you know, it, it's pretty compelling what can be done with existing tool sets today to your point. On that note, I want to zoom back into a comment you made a few moments ago about your, you know, you mentioned brainstorming and you mentioned content repurposing as two use cases that are powerful for you and perhaps are low-hanging fruit for our listeners. We talked a little bit about brainstorming. I'd like to come back to the content repurposing comment. And I think that's a super interesting one for associations in particular because they are essentially content businesses in many respects. They uh, and often, you know, an association might have the best content in their particular domain. They might have the best content in a particular field of medicine or whatever the, the uh, profession may be. And a lot of what we spend our time thinking about is, well, how can associations leverage that asset more and more, uh, perhaps across modalities like taking text and turning it into videos or perhaps from one language to another? Uh, I know there's some interesting opportunities there. But even something as mundane as perhaps say, oh, OK, well, we have this podcast and we want to spin off some blogs from it. We want to spin off some social posts from it. We want to spin off some Instagram and TikTok reels that will be able to draw traffic in and build our audiences there. And, um, you know, Mallory, I know that that's an area that you're super close to. I'd love for you to maybe just share a little bit about what you're doing with uh, that type of content repurposing. And I'd love to hear Greg's input um, based on what you, what you share. Absolutely. So basically what Amit just described is exactly what we're doing over here at Sidecar. We do this podcast every week and we generate the transcript through a tool called Descript. From there, we throw that transcript into ChatGPT or portions of the transcript and we ask ChatGPT to generate outlines, blog outlines. I mean, we found that this is the best strategy because ChatGPT does not excel at generating a whole blog at a time. It's something it can do, but it's often shorter than what you're looking for and maybe a little too general for what we're looking for. So we will first paste in a portion of our transcript from this podcast, ask it to generate an outline for a blog, work with that a little bit, make some tweaks, make sure it's relevant for our audience. Then we'll have it assist us in writing the blog while of course having, you know, human oversight and editing on that piece. And then we'll post it. But on the other side of that, on the content repurposing, we are playing around currently with a tool called Munch. So we just started video recording our podcasts and posting them on YouTube to the Sidecar Sync YouTube, which just launched basically this week. 
And Munch is really neat. You can drop in the whole video recording. This could be from a podcast or from maybe a course or a boot camp that you're running or a conference that you have. And Munch will auto splice it into the most relevant pieces of that recording. It will add um, words on top of it or a script on top of the video. And it also, I don't know exactly how this works. It's looking at topics and keywords that are trending right now on the internet. That's how it's choosing to create these AI generated clips. So you can basically in 30 minutes or so, and that's just processing. But for on my end, it just means uploading the video to Munch and letting it do its job. You could have 10 to 12 clips that are highly relevant for your audience that are trending that you can then post out to TikTok or Instagram Reels or LinkedIn. And so that is something neat that we are doing. Greg, I'm wondering if you've played around with that at all with your podcast. Yeah, definitely. So I, I use a different tool. It's called Swell AI, but similar in, um, you know, it, it spits out social posts and blog articles. Again, all, all need editing, all need work and all have some weird like intros. They all, they all start the same and end the same, which is always, that's not a, that's not a knock on that product, but I think that's just gen AI in general likes to say in conclusion at the end of posts. But um, I actually tried to train Llama to not do that. It stopped for like an hour and then it added it back in. It's pretty ingrained. But that all that aside, um, yeah, you know, it it's helped me tremendously. I mean, I have a team that like edits my show and does the production of it, but I do a lot of the, you know, content promotion still myself. And so um, being able to have blog posts and social posts and, you know, with minor edits, they're ready to go every, you know, I do three shows a week. So it's like, it's a, it's a, it would be a lot of work to do that otherwise. So, um, and the, the clip functionality, yeah, that's a, that's a relatively new, um, new thing I'm trying out as well. On the topic of pet peeves, another thing that ChatGPT does, at least I've noticed, Greg, I wonder if you've noticed it as well. It will often frame sentences as not only does AI do this, but it also does X, Y, Z. And to me, when I see that now in a blog, one, it drives me nuts. And two, even though some people do actually write like that, immediately in my mind, I'm like, that is a chat GPT sentence. Greg, I have a question too. So it seems like we've gotten maybe a bit spoiled in the last 12 months with generative AI. And the fact that, of course, we're all in this space. And for us, it's become somewhat normal. It's become a part of our everyday workflows. And something that people have come up to me and talked to me about personally is, you know, we're interested in AI education. We like the podcast. We're interested in the boot camp. We're kind of tired of content generation. We're tired of the marketing content piece. We want to dive deeper than that. So I'm wondering if you have any perspective or use cases. We talked about content repurposing, which is a little bit different. But in terms of marketing in AI, that's not necessarily that content generation piece. Do you have any thoughts on great use cases there? Yeah. So, I mean, if we kind of put generative AI aside. I mean, there's all, there's whole other realms of, of AI, you know, predictive analytics is something that I spend a lot of my time on. I actually spend more time in my consulting work in the predictive area than I do in generative, um, generative, I do a lot, you know, as you probably could tell in, with my own stuff, but, um, you know, predictive. And again, this, this is another kind of thing where, um, you know, data science is getting kind of democratized by, um, by AI. And so, you know, I spend at, at the large company level, spent a lot of time looking at like propensity models of, you know, how, how likely is a customer to buy or to churn if it's a subscription model, but, um, with the right tools, a nonprofit, you know, they're looking for donations. They're looking for new members. They're looking for, um, membership churn, you know, as well to, to mitigate against that. So these tools are getting better. I would say the, in the predictive space, it's a little, um, generative has gotten a lot more affordable and, and accessible more quickly than, than some of the predictive stuff, but it, th that other stuff is not that far behind the, so, you know, I would say definitely, you know, those, those CEOs of associations and nonprofits out there that are really looking at their financial, um, performance and everything like that's, that's definitely an area to look at. I think it's an excellent reminder for our audience that there's a whole a whole world of diverse AI and ML opportunities out there beyond just the generative apps that we're talking about. And what you're describing about predicting who might churn, predicting who might or might not attend a conference, those are applications of machine learning that have been around with, with quite great effect, actually, in many businesses for a long time. But there has been a bit of a hurdle uh, where you had to have either a certain amount of data or a certain amount of dollars to get to those types of apps. 
And there is a democratization process of that happening right now, perhaps also because of the intersection of generative AI uh, being able to execute code for you and things like advanced data analysis inside ChatGPT, which at the moment is fairly limited, but I uh, envision a world in the very near future, and this is an engineering opportunity, not really a scientific uh, advancement needed, where you're able to talk to uh, a generative AI tool and ask for things like propensity analysis around a particular data set. And actually, you can do some of that right now. Um, and uh, that's that to me is a great opportunity for people who might not have a data science team or even the resources to hire a fractional data scientist to execute on, on what you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you bring up a great point. I, I think the most exciting um, thing to me about AI is the combination of types of, of AI. So, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, there's generative, which we've talked about plenty. There's there's the predictive um, component. There's also the the workflow automation component, which, you know, anybody using a project management system um, or anyone that's ever searched on a search engine used any if this, then that statement, they've used AI, you know, maybe at its most basic level. But, you know, so we've been using AI for, you know, decades at this point, of course. But um, I think the predictive plus generative, to your point, is really exciting because, I mean, again, let's let's say you get you look through a list of 10,000 potential event attendees and you know you've got 2500 likely attendees if you're a small team it's nice to know that there's 2500 people out there but what are you going to do about that you know you need some help and some assistance unless you just send out a a blank you know a, a, a the same email to everybody or something like that but to actually personalize it to 2500 people this is where generative plus predictive can really get exciting and I think to broaden your point even further, there's so many tools in our world, even outside of what's AI proper, that you know are useful, right? Like doing math, LLMs we know are pretty bad at it and doing scientific right. types of work. But there's a lot of symbolic or, or traditional programs that are out there that can be woven in quite easily into these AI solutions that execute on those types of tasks. And I think I, I agree with you that engineering of solutions where you combine some generative AI, some traditional compute, perhaps some predictive models, et cetera, to create solutions that execute on it. So you take Greg's idea of like, oh, these 2,500 people are people who might be interested in our conference. What do we do? Well, let's invoke a workflow. We let's A-B test several messages. Now the generative AI may generate the possible campaign A-B branches and on and on and on. And then you run it back through the predictive model again once you have the first round of feedback. And that iterative ability, I think, would require mass scale of resources only a couple of years ago. And now is something that's very quickly coming down and being attainable by just about anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And which goes back to AI just being, you know, it's, it's immediate application to, you know, organizations, small or large is just, you know, it's pretty phenomenal. Greg, you know, any, any conversation around AI wouldn't be complete unless we talked a little bit about ethics and safety. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about in the work that you're doing and consulting with clients or in your own business, um, what are your general thoughts in terms of framing the conversation around how to do AI in a responsible, safe and ethical way? Yeah, you know, I think I think first of all, and, you know, this kind of goes back to the the education piece is, you know, leaders at organizations need to understand enough to be able to create guidelines like employees need guardrails in what they should or should not do you know, on their own time. They can do whatever they want. But, you know, when it's when it's done for the organization and with the organization's data and information, there have to be some guardrails. It's not just enough to say, oh, well, you know, she knows data and AI or whatever. Let her just like run wild or whatever. It's like it's it, there's got to be some. And but in order to do that, you have to know what you're talking about. And and so I think it's incumbent on leaders to understand enough to be able to say, OK, yeah, we're going to we're going to use it here, but not there. We're going to use it for this type of content, but not that. Um, we're going to feed this kind of stuff into a model and not this other stuff. You know, so in other words, it's going to vary, obviously, by industry and by by focus or whatever. But um, I think it really has to start with that. But it the the rule can't be don't use it. <laughs> you know, the, if we're just we're past that already. Um, and if anyone out there is is thinking that we're not, it, that's it's it's just patently false. I think I read this morning that New York City passed the new AI hiring law that had to do with the disclosure of transparency around algorithms uh, that are used for, I believe, candidate selection. Uh, I'm not sure if it covers interviewing. 
Um, and I, I know a lot of associations that are concerned about biases and AI, and that's part of their AI safety, AI ethics conversation. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example of where there's often concerns. Um, associations are collaborative environments. They are intended to represent a profession or an industry. And so uh, one of the most important things they do is promote ideas in that space. And that's done through various medium, including their conference include, or conferences, uh, their publications. And so they have, a, they have a process, a structured process for selecting that content. So if you want to speak at an annual conference for a particular association, usually, unless you're invited to be a keynote, you usually submit a proposal. And then there's a process that they might go through, uh, perhaps with committee members who are experts in the field. There's some staff involved in kind of, you know, mediating the process, essentially. And certainly this is an opportunity area for AI. There's many, many areas of AI we could use to automate a large portion of that. But there might be concerns about like, well, if we're using the AI to help suggest which of the proposals might be best for our conference, Where's the bias come in? Has any of your work brought you across similar situations where people had a concern about biases that they had to address and kind of put in place some safeguards? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, you know, I think that's that's always going to be a consideration. You know, particularly, you know, we use the term transparency on, you know, how do we how do we know what's sort of in the black box of of AI's decision making process? So, you know, some tools are not very good with that transparency and others, you know, other others a lot better than that. I think that is an area where um, some of the more like let's call it enterprise grade tools have transparency built in because they're going after large financial organizations or healthcare or whatever, where they're just, they wouldn't even get in the door um, if they didn't have those, you know, smaller organizations that don't have quite those dollars to spend they're going to go with some things that don't have that level of transparency. So, you know, that all that to say, um, it's definitely an issue and it's something to, to mitigate against where possible. You know, I, I would say, you know, as a caveat here though, humans are always biased as well. And, you know, so I, I always, I, I wrote an article about this, um, a few months back as well, not, not to say that we should just blindly trust AI because that, there's been some very egregious examples of bias and in, you know, you mentioned the hiring process. There's some very notable case studies there of where that just ran amok and, and was terrible. Um, but we shouldn't think that just doing it with humans is going to protect us ourselves against bias because, you know, history shows us otherwise. Right. So I think it's, it's about, how do you find a tool, the right tool for the right job? So, you know, if you're, if you're generating an innocuous blog post, maybe, you know, bias isn't the top concern. If you're evaluating candidates for um, hiring, absolutely. Like you've got to have a tool that you can know, you know, what's, what's getting fed into that, why, and how can I see the process so that, um, so that I can mitigate against, against that. I think that's a really good point or set of points that you've made in particular that the human biases are often uh, really not taken into account when we think about like, you know, it's not, it's not an either or situation. It's probably an and situation, but the idea of is AI bias worse than human bias? And in, in a way, it kind of reflects back our own biases based on how it's been trained. But, um, you know, in the case of the committee example I provided earlier where, you know, you're evaluating calls for a proposal or speakers for a conference. Um, you know, people are creatures of habit. They tend to say yes to proposals from people they know, uh, perhaps things that they're kind of tuned into. And that's just how our brains work. Uh, it's not that they're bad or good. It's just part of the process. And so I think AI potentially can be a counterweight to that in some respects. Um, part of the uh, research I'm most excited about this year is advances in AI interpretability and having models be better explainable or more, more explainable kind of inherently. I think there's also an engineering part of the solution too, which is to architect your solution so that you actually ask the AI for the reasons why they said yes or no to something. So if I'm building a solution where I make an API call to GPT-4 and I say, here is a proposal for this particular conference, evaluate it in these, these different areas, I'm not gonna just ask for a number back, I'm gonna ask for a narrative. And actually, if you ask the AI for a reason, a lot of times it's pretty good. And sometimes its reasoning is, is really, really bad. So um, there's ways, I think, of putting in place some interesting safeguards around that. I, I really like the way you're framing that. You know, if you think about it in terms of if you had a committee to go back to the speaker proposal, you know, thing, um, if you had a committee of five people, 
um, why not treat AI as the sixth member of that committee? And just like, you know, this person sitting across from you on the committee, they may have really bad reasons for recommending someone as well. Like they may just, they may know someone or they may have seen their name on online and not even remember how they saw, like, we don't, we don't even, we're not even conscious of all the biases that we have. Right. So like, why not do a compare and contrast of like, okay, let's, let's send it to AI as if they were part of that team. Let's see what the rest of us come up with. If AI is so different and so, you know, skewed one direction or another, then, you know, then there's something wrong there or, you know, something to think about. Very good. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's so much to be learned by experimentation, as you had mentioned earlier, and there's you know, there's many opportunities out there. And, and to Greg's point, it is like that extra member of the team that you can bolt on and add into the mix. And it's not about handing over the reins to AI entirely or not at all. It can be gradients of that. And I think there's ample room for experimentation with that particular use case and many others that we've discussed. Well, Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your experience and expertise with associations and nonprofits who listen to the Sidecar Sync. Um, Greg, if people would like to get a hold of you because they're interested in uh, your expertise or the services your company provides, what's the best way for them to, uh, to get you? Yeah, so two two quick things. I mean, one, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so you can look me up, Greg Kilstrom on on LinkedIn, and then um, my website is just gregkilstrom.com. So I just um, a little hard to spell sometimes, but um, just uh, lo- look me. Up. I think even if you search with the wrong spelling, it should show up. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. What a great conversation we had with Greg today. Shout out to you, Greg, for sharing your expertise and your insights with our listeners today. I want to wrap back to something that he mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, and that is this fear of change within your business, this fear of a new technology, this fear of AI in particular, and that the first line of defense he mentioned there was education. I'm sure if you've listened to this podcast before, you are certain that Amith and I are also on board with this. We believe that education is the first line of defense to the fear of the unknown. How can you prepare for AI or for a new technology if you don't fully understand what it's capable of? So I really appreciate that that insight from Greg. And I, of course, want to remind you that we have the Sidecar AI Bootcamp available if you are looking to deepen your AI education this year. Again, you can get more information on that bootcamp at sidecarglobal.com slash bootcamp. But aside from the Sidecar Bootcamp, continue listening to podcasts like this one and other AI podcasts. Keep reading AI blogs and consuming all the free AI resources you can because that is the only way to prepare for what's coming with AI in 2024 and beyond. Thank you all for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to Sidecar Sync this week. Looking to dive deeper? Download your free copy of our new book, Ascend, Unlocking the Power of AI for Associations at ascendbook.org. It's packed with insights to power your association's journey with AI. And remember, Sidecar is here with more resources from webinars to boot camps to help you stay ahead in the association world. We'll catch you in the next episode. Until then, keep learning, keep growing, and keep disrupting.